Tune your ear to wisdom. Cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000-year-old book. Hello, my friend. It is so great to have you back with me. It is a privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you, and I am excited to do it again today. So let's pause and ask our King to bless this time. Oh, Holy Father, we love you. We love your Word. We love that you have written this Word just so that we could know you better, just so that we could fall more in love with our Savior Jesus. And we just ask that you would help us to do that today as we read these words in this amazing book. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, my friend, I want to take you back into time. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you're living in an ancient Greek city. And one day you look off into the hills and you see someone running towards the town. And they're waving their arms and they're yelling, Euangelion! Euangelion! And of course, you know what that word means. And so you quickly ring the bells of the town and gather all the townsfolk together in the town square. And as the messenger arrives, you say, what is this good news that you bring? And the man says, Euangelion, which means good news. The king has been enthroned. Euangelion, the word a messenger would shout when he's bringing good news. And it's, it's such a beautiful word too, isn't it? Euangelion. It just, it just rolls off the tongue. It's like an, an elvish word that J.R.R. Tolkien would invent. <laughs> but it's the word that we're going to look at today. Because we're in Philippians chapter 1, and we are examining Paul's explanation of why, in the midst of a prison sentence, he can be filled with joy and thanksgiving and excitement. And uh, we've, we've looked at this already last time. We're going to look at it again today. We'll start again in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership in the gospel, right? So in our last episode, we we dug into that word partnership or fellowship. But this time we're going to dig into the focus of what their fellowship was all about. It was partnership in the gospel. And in case you haven't guessed, the word gospel in Greek is euangelion. Great announcement. And so I want to just unpack this word today. I was actually surprised when I realized that I had never in all my years of Bible study done a deep dive into this word gospel. But this week I did, and I'm so excited to try to bring to you some of the things I discovered. Now, euangelion comes from two Greek words, eu, which means good or well or splendid, and angelos, which means message or announcement or report. Now, the word you is not often used by itself. There's other words for the word good in Greek, but you is very often used as a prefix on other words. And when it's used as a prefix, it elevates those words to mean something more than they were before. For example, there's a Greek word that's pronounced euergetes, which literally would be translated good worker. But it's most often used as benefactor or an honorary title of nobility. Uh, Another example is eukarya, good time. That would be the literal translation, but most often it's, it's translated as the opportune moment or something that's done with perfect timing. 
And so when you when you tack on this word you in the beginning of a word, it takes something that's ordinary and it, it elevates it to the ep- epitome of excellence. And so you, Angelos, means wonderful, splendid announcement. So before we look at what this word means in this verse itself, what I want to do first is to back away for a moment from Philippians and look across the whole vista of Scripture to see how this word is used in the Bible, to try to understand what Paul might have had in mind when he wrote it. The word euangelion is used 76 times in the New Testament, but I was surprised to learn this week that it was also used in the Old Testament. You'll recall that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, of course, but back in the days of Alexander the Great, Greek became the lingua franca of the entire empire, and so they translated the Bible into the Greek. They called that version the Septuagint. And so we can learn from the Septuagint how the early readers of the New Testament would have understood their Greek words. In other words, the Septuagint is the book that Paul would often have been reading and would have informed his vocabulary. And so it turns out that euangelion is used often in the Old Testament. Now, we don't have time to look at all the places, but what I do want to look at is just one particular author. His name is Isaiah. And in the end of the book of Isaiah, Uh, This prophet is proclaiming the promise of a coming kingdom, a kingdom that is going to transform the world. And so let me read just a few of the verses that Isaiah uses to describe this coming kingdom. First, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, he says, Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, euangelion. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of euangelion. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. What a beautiful declaration of the coming kingdom. Here is your God. That was Isaiah's euangelion. He goes on in chapter 52, verse 7. He says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings euangelion, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Again, you see this picture of how lovely on the mountains are the feet. You see this picture of a messenger running through the mountains, yelling the euangelion of peace and happiness and the new reign of God. One more that I want to read is 61 verse 1. You'll recognize this one because Jesus quoted it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring euangelion to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. Euangelion. So Isaiah was speaking of a coming gospel, if we were to translate it into the English that is often. But now Isaiah may not have known all the details of this gospel that was coming, but he knew that it was good news. And he knew that it represented salvation and restoration of the kingdom of God on this planet. So now let's fast forward to the very beginning of the New Testament. Now, of course, we don't know exactly which book was written first, The books didn't come with publication dates. But many scholars believe that Mark was the first one to write. And so after Malachi, the final author of the Old Testament, set down his pen, there was 400 years of silence until Mark picked up his and he wrote these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
that should just give chills down your back if you know that this promise is now arriving on the scene. The messenger has come. The gospel, the euangelion of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Of course, the Bethlehem angel said the same thing in Luke 2, verse 10, when he said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you euangelion that will cause great joy for all the people. And then Matthew describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry this way in Matthew 4, 23. This is before the Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning of his ministry. Matthew tells us that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So Jesus came preaching the euangelion, preaching this incredibly great announcement that the kingdom is arriving. Of course, this is good news, and a lot of people were excited about it. But lest you think that it was going to be easy, Jesus made it clear that it might not be as easy as they might think. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The gospel. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, it's, I, I'm not surprised that Jesus says you need to die for me. You need to be willing to die for me to be able to give up everything for me. But here he's elevating the gospel to equally importance. He says you need to be, if you want to be my disciple, you need to be willing to give up everything and to even die. Not only for me, but for the gospel. It's almost as if the gospel and Jesus are intertwined. <laughs> In fact, that's exactly it. Jesus is saying that I am the good news. And if you are going to die for me, you need to die for this message that I have come with the kingdom. And then in Matthew 24, 14, we read, Jesus tells us this is the very end of his life. He says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So he's looking forward to the end of the world, and he says the gospel is going to be the glorious message all the way to the end, and it has to go all the way to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. And so from Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus to the end of time, the gospel is the central message. And of course, even after Christ left and the church was born, this gospel message was still the center of their lives. We read in chapter 5 where, they, where they're preaching the gospel and they were arrested by the Sanhedrin, by the Jews, and they were beaten and flogged and they were ordered to stop preaching it. But then the Sanhedrin let them go and in verse 41, it says, as the apostles left the Sanhedrin, they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And instead of becoming quiet and obeying the command, says verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped preaching and proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. This was their life. This was everything to them. So, of course, if that's true, what we really need to do is stop and ask, what is the gospel? What was it that they were so excited about, that they were giving their lives 
to announce. Now, we said that gospel, good, euangelion, means good news or splendid report or wonderful announcement. But what was this message that they were announcing? What was the content of the message? I think I told you that euangelion is used nearly 70 times in the New Testament. By far, the most of those occurrences is are in the books of Paul. This was one of Paul's favorite words, and he talks about it all the time, and thankfully, he explains exactly what he means by it. And I'd just like to take a look at a couple of these verses. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses. He says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. And so then in verse 3, he explains exactly what it is he's talking about. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's it. That's the message that they were proclaiming. That was Paul's gospel. Years later, when Paul is writing his very last book, he summarizes this gospel even more succinctly. It's like as if in his old age, he's just boiled it down to its sheer essence. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy 2.8. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. So that's it. That's the gospel. The euangelion. You know, I think, to be honest, in modern American church, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about, I don't know, if you're old enough, you may remember the four spiritual laws, or we talk about the sinner's prayer where we say, you know, the gospel is uh, we're sinners, God loves us, and if you say the prayer, then you get to go to heaven. Well, that's okay, I suppose, but I have to tell you, I don't think that the disciples and the apostles would have recognized that as the gospel. This is a very Americanized version of the gospel. When Paul spoke of the gospel, he says these three things. Jesus, the Messiah, risen from the dead, descended from David. That's it. The gospel is Jesus. To proclaim the gospel is to proclaim the message of who Jesus is. That is the essence of the gospel. He is the Messiah, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He has risen from the dead, thus demonstrating that he has the power of Almighty God. And he is descended from David. That's an interesting one. What does that mean? Well, it means that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David, who was the greatest, most powerful king of the Old Testament. And of course, all the prophets promised that a new Davidic king would come and the the kingdom of David would conquer the entire world. And so Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. He is the king over all that is. That is what Paul proclaimed. That was his gospel. So... What does all of this have to do with the book of Philippians? This is a podcast on Philippians, after all. Well, as it turns out, Paul mentions the word gospel nine times in this letter. Keep in mind that this letter is only four chapters. It takes maybe 15 minutes to read, and he mentions gospel. He talks about gospel nine times 
it's as if he can't stop thinking about it. He can't stop talking about it. It is a theme of his life. He just repeats it again and again. And so what I want to do is to really briefly just skim through all of these uh, mentions of the word gospel in his book. And what I want you to do is I want you to listen to the verbs that he uses that go along with the gospel. Okay? The verbs, the action that goes along with it. So Philippians 1.5, I thank God for your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7, I am in chains because of the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, My circumstances in prison has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Verse 16, Knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 127, he says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And later in that same verse, he says, with one mind, strive together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 22, he says that Timothy served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. In chapter 4, verse 3, he talks about two ladies who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. And in chapter 4, verse 15, he mentions the preaching of the gospel. And so what do all these have have in common? They all have in common that there is an action on our part that has to do with the gospel. And the action is not just proclaiming it, but participating in the, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The progress of the gospel comes by defending it, by conducting ourselves worthy of it, by striving and struggling to further the gospel. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying that the gospel was never meant to be just some simple doctrine that sits on a shelf. The gospel demands action, action on our parts, not action for us to be saved, but action to proclaim this message, to announce this splendid, wonderful news of who Jesus is. And it's action that takes participation, defense, confirmation, progress, Defending the gospel, striving for the gospel, struggling in the cause of the gospel. This is the picture that Paul has in mind. This is his life. This was his whole life. He says in 2 Timothy, I was appointed to be a herald and an apostle and a teacher of the gospel. That's all that he lives for. And this brings us back to the verse of our text today, Philippians 1.5 where he talks to the Philippians and he tells them that what he is most excited about them is this, that they get it and that they have been participating in this gospel from the first day until now, that they understand how huge the message of Jesus is. You'll remember that it goes all the way back to the first day when Paul was standing in that Philippian jail and the Philippian jailer was asking him, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And from that day on, that jailer and Lydia and then all the others who were saved in those early weeks began proclaiming the news of the Lord Jesus, the emperor Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, risen from the dead, descended from David. This was their gospel. And Paul says, I thank God every time I think about you because I know that you get it. 
My friend, I just need to ask you this question because I've been asking myself this question too. If Paul knew me by name, would he be as excited about my participation in the gospel? Would he look at me and know that I get it, that I am all in, that I have sold out for Jesus to proclaim the message of who Jesus is? Friends, that needs to be the center of our lives. It was the center of Paul's, and it was the center of the Philippians, and that's why he was so excited. Lord Jesus, I come to you right now, and I just thank you and praise you that you are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of all of our lives. You are worthy for us to lose everything for Jesus and the gospel. So, Lord God, I pray that you would pour this into our hearts, that it would grab a hold of us like it grabbed a hold of Paul and the Philippians, that we would live, live our lives for the sake of the gospel, to proclaim this amazing message of who Jesus is. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. Thank you for making it all possible. Amen. spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart and transform your life until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.